long last, the violent. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante. We are in the 12th canto of Inferno. We are at the very back of the canto, lines 103 to 139, the finish off of this canto. We are in the circle of the violent, the seventh circle of hell. We are in the first ring of that circle, and we are with those who have been violent against others. And we haven't seen the violent yet. We've seen centaurs and minotaurs, all of that. And yet, where are the sinners? Here they come. Lines 103 to 139. I saw people dunked to their eyebrows, and the grand centaur said, They are the tyrants who bathe their hands in blood and plundering. Here they lament their slash-and-burn crimes. Here's Alexander and fierce Dionysius, who made Sicily endure years of woe. And that forehead that has really black hair is Ezzelino, and that other one, the blonde, is Obizzo da Este, who, truth be told, was slain up in the world by his own bastard. At this, I turned to the poet, and he said, let him be your primary guide now, and I your second. A little ways ahead, the centaur paused above some people who looked as if they were rising from the boiling stream up to their throats. He showed us a shade by itself on one side, saying, In the center of God's church, that one split the heart that still drips blood above the Thames. Then I saw some people who had not only their heads, but their chests out of the stream, and I recognized a lot of these. And more and more, the level of blood sank lower until it just brazed the soles of their feet. And this was where we could cross the ditch. Just as you see that the boiling stream grows shallower right here, the centaur said, I would have you believe me that the stream bed gets deeper and deeper on the other side until it gets deep enough so that tyranny groans forever. Over there, divine justice stings Attila, who was the scourge of the earth, and Pyrrhus, and Sextus, too. It eternally milks the tears loosened by the boiling of Rainier de Cornetto and Rainier Pazzo, who have declared war on the roadways. Then he turned back and crossed at the ford again. We have finally come amongst the violent. And now a confession from me, <laughs> from, from your dear narrator. I have moved ahead in the Dante podcast well, all the way through the next canto and even into the 14th canto. And I have not recorded this passage. Why? Because I didn't know how to do it. We now just get a zoo of the violent against others. There's some commentary in here that we want to get and want to look at them. And I thought to myself, how do you do this without just making it a big commentary of glosses on this passage? Well, I'm going to try. So here we go. Let's start out right at the top and see what's present in the river of boiling blood. I saw people dunked to their eyebrows and the grand centaur. And if you remember, he's on Nessus. He's astride Nessus at this point. Nessus, the centaur, who got his revenge on Hercules, who tried to rape Hercules' wife and carried her off until Hercules killed him. That centaur, grand, and the word is grand, a grand, great, big, 
These are strange characters, these centaurs. The grand centaur who says, these are the tyrants, tyranni, the tyrants. And let's just stop for a moment and think about this word tyrants. Dante later, later most likely, it's not exactly clear, but later, Dante writes his treatise on the perfect form of government, sometimes in English called the monarchy, the monarchia, this treatise in which Dante claims that there needs to be an emperor and there needs to be a pope, and the two need to be in perfect balance with one another. We could talk a lot more about this treatise on monarchy when we get up into Paradiso, but for right now, Dante does seem to gloss, and most commentators point this out, how he defines tyrants. In book three of the monarchy, in chapter four, right about line 10, Dante offers this definition of what a tyrant is. Tyrants do not observe public rights for the common welfare. A tyrant is someone who puts their own claims above the public welfare. And what we're arguing for here is some kind of, to use a very old-fashioned term, enlightened despot. And that slips into tyranny when they cease to notice the public good and only notice their own affairs. And so if we take that gloss from the monarchy, which almost every commentator does, as correct for this passage, then these are those guys who forgot the public good, who, as it says, bathed their hands in blood and plundering. So who are these guys? It's a little bit confusing. They lament here, they slash and burn crimes, Nasus tells us, and then we get the big drop. Here's Alexander. Most people think this refers to Alexander the Great, but I'm going to tell you why not in a minute. But let's pass on and just see who they are. Here's Alexander and fierce Dionysius. This is Dionysius the Elder of Syracuse, maybe. A tyrant who reigned in Sicily. These are really bad guys. These are guys who, you know, basically destroyed the social order, made Sicily endure years of woe. So they're really sunk down. (laughs) And Nessus goes on and says the forehead over there with the really black hair is Ezzelino. He means Ezzelino III da Romano, a local warlord tyrant in central Italy. This is all part of a larger problem in Dante's day that the town communes are starting to fall into despotism. And so there's a comment going on here about the way that a proper form of government can slip down. And so we get these ancient figures, Alexander and Dionysius, and then we get some modern figures, Etzelino, and then we get a second one, Obizzo da Este, that's Obizzo the second d'Este, Ferrara. These are, again, local warlord tyrants. It's important to just note for this moment that Ezzelino III da Romano, his sister will become a major figure up in Paradiso, and she will have a major role later in Paradiso. But right now, this is where he is sunk in the river of blood. And it says, Obizzo da Este, who, truth be told, was slain up in the world by his own bastard. A lot of the commentators claim that this was not actually known in Dante's day. It was rumored. I don't know if it's known now, but it was rumored in Dante's day, and Dante seems to be accepting the rumor. So here's four tyrants, two old-fashioned ones from way back in the day, and two modern ones to Dante. And then there's a break, and it's this break that I want to stop at because I find this the most important and interesting bit so far. 
At this, that is seeing these four figures and one of them killed by his own bastard, I turn to the poet and Virgil, the poet, says, let him, Nessus, be your primary guide now. And I, you're saying what he really says in the Florentine, I, I fudge the translation just a little. What he says is, let him be your first now and I your second. And I'm assuming that means your first, your primary guide. Look to him for the answers, not to me. This is incredibly wild. <laughs> Virgil is stepping out of the lead here. Virgil, our guide, our pilgrim's guide, is stepping out of the lead and saying, no, 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 let Nessus take over. This is what is so wild about comedy in these little two lines. What is so wild is that you have a poem that is incredibly structured. You got the rings of hell and you got people in the rings and you got a kind of theology of the rings and you're going to have a theology of purgatory. Everything is super structured, categorized. People dropped into categories right and left. And yet our poet seems to break the categories nonstop. Here's a category. Virgil is our guide using a lot of critics, which I don't buy. Virgil is the allegory of reason. Okay, fine. So, you know, drop him into this spot, hold him there, make him fit that bit. Great. Now, all of a sudden you get this line where Virgil says, let him, Nasus, be your primary guide and I your second. And suddenly you think, wait a minute, what happened to the categories? Virgil was supposed to be the guide, now he's not. Centaurs are in hell, but yet they're going to be guides? Who are these centaurs? Are they demonic figures? Does it seem like a grand centaur nessus? They seem to have turned from being these violent, threatening creatures early in the canto to now being tour guides, bus tours of, of the River of Blood. That right there shows us that our poet has an extraordinary sense of the structure and yet is willing to violate the categorizing structure of his own poem whenever it suits him and for whatever reasons he decides. I find this just absolutely fascinating. You set something up and then you stop. I mean, when when have we been here? When have we been like this? Where some where Virgil would say, "No, that's enough of me. Let somebody else do all the talking." What? And then when have we seen figures who are infernal and seem bent on torture, and yet they seem to be sure guides of this rank of hell? Who are these creatures? And again, if you think about the categories, you got the saved and the damned, right? You got all the people on God's side and all the angels and all the spirits on God's side. And you got the damned, all the people on the other side. It's not Milton. It's not really Satan's side, but you got all the people as we, as we will see in Inferno. It's all the people on the other side. Okay, fair enough. There's our big categories. And yet, where do these centaurs fit in that big categorization of the universe? They don't seem to fit very well. Once again, our poet is ahead of us. A little ways ahead, the centaur Arnesis paused above some people who looked as if they were rising from the boiling stream up to their throats. So they're, they're getting less and less submerged. They, they wear their foreheads and you could just see their black hair or their blonde hair sticking out. Now like we got heads up and we got chests coming soon. So this thing is getting shallower and shallower, I suppose, 
on the level of the crime. The, the worse you are, the more sunk down in it you are. So he stopped and he showed a shade by itself on one side, saying, in the center of God's church, that one split the heart that still drips blood above the Thames. You might have thought of Thomas Beckett. It's really not. It's Guy de Montfort, um, born about 1243 Common Era, died 1298. His English blood, part of the English royal family. He killed his cousin, Henry of Cornwall, in Viterbo in 1271. Uh, basically, uh, he's doing this to avenge, uh, de Montfort does this to avenge his own father's murder. He kills his cousin, Henry of Cornwall. And apparently, uh, sort of the tale went that Dante would know, Henry of Cornwall was there in Viterbo. He was at the mass. The host was just being lifted up in the mass and Guy de Montfort killed his cousin right at that moment. And this is seen as all very, you know, that uh, Henry of Cornwall was very religious and pious and the host is being lifted up and then he's slain. And the long and the short is Henry of Cornwall's heart was returned to England and was said to still be dripping blood. In other words, this is a reference to a relic, a kind of relic that is still functioning to drip blood, even in Dante's day. This bit about relics will become more important. We're going to want to talk more and more about them. There's a way in which, uh, well, to put it bluntly, relics shaped modern Europe. And I don't mean shaped them, shaped Europe theologically, and I don't mean shaped Europe, I don't know, philosophically. I mean that the positioning of relics changed trade routes, and much of modern Western Europe is the way it is because of the trade routes set up by pilgrimages to relics. But we're going to want to talk more about that when we get farther into relics. This is kind of our first moment in which we actually catch a relic, and here it is, a heart still dripping blood above the Thames. Let's pass on to the next figures. Then I saw some people who had not only their heads, but their chests out of the stream. And I recognized a lot of these. And notice it's not filled in. I don't know who they are. These must be more common run-of-the-mill murderers. That's what I take it. Or common run-of-the-mill plunderers. We had the big guys, you know, Alexander the Great, Dionysius, uh, the elder of Syracuse. And again, those are problematic. I'm going to come back to why they might be in just a minute. And then we get... Hmm, lesser and lesser types until we finally get these ones that just have the blood, <laughs> the boiling blood brazing, notice the cooking metaphor, the soles of their feet. And this was where we could cross the ditch. If you don't hear it, you might miss it. That's the fording. They just forded the river of boiling blood. This was where we could cross the ditch. It's stated obliquely. It's strange. Remember, we never see our pilgrim get astride, Nessus. And now the fording itself seems strangely opaque. You could blow right past it and not see it. Okay, why are these big guys problematic? Well, there's a lot of commentary on this. A lot of people, especially now, do not think Alexander is Alexander the Great. They posit other Alexanders, other figures. And part of that is because they say, well, listen, Alexander was taught by Aristotle. Dante loves his Aristotle. How could Dante put Alexander here if Alexander the Great was Aristotle's student? It's got to be somebody else. People point to the same problems with Dionysius that maybe it's Dionysius, the elder of Syracuse's son, Dionysius the younger. It's a little confusing, and I'm not sure it's not supposed to be a little confusing. We do think that Dante knows about 
these figures from his possible teacher, Brunetto Latini, and his writings. And he, we do think he's cribbing a bit of this from Latini and a few other sources. So it could be Alexander the Great. Latini certainly defines Alexander the Great as a tyrant. So it could be he's picking it up here. I should just let you know that there's a lot of slippage here. Not so much about Guy de Montfort, and not so much about the Azzolino and Obizzo, the contemporary figures, but about the ancient figures. And I'm not sure that opacity is not built into the text. It's one of the reasons that people don't like Canto 12, that commentators don't like it. It's because it slips right and left. The centaurs slip. The identities of these figures slip. I find it, frankly, fascinating, more so maybe even than a perfect canto. You know, I lead an online book group, and I work very hard to find texts that are good for an, a big open discussion. One of the things that I know is I don't pick what I think, what, in my opinion, are perfect novels, because it's very hard to discuss a perfect novel. I find it very hard for me to discuss Henry James' Portrait of a Lady or Henry James' The Ambassadors. I consider those near-perfect novels. Same with Brothers Karamazov. Same with Middlemarch. Those are very hard for me because I think they're so near perfection, so close. Same with Kate Atkinson's Life After Life, a modern novel. I find those very hard to discuss. I, it's better for me to make a novel than I think has some cracks in it and some structural problems because then we have entree in in discussion. And I think that's this. There are definitely cracks in this canto, but that lets us in to the canto itself. It's not so hermetically sealed, so we get our place in it. I kind of like that bit, and I kind of can't kick it for that because I almost feel as if the poet is fighting something here, and I don't know what it is that he's fighting, but so much opacity. When do you get up on Nessus's back? When exactly do they cross that boiling river? Who exactly are these figures? Why is so much time devoted to the centaurs? Why do they start out seem so threatening and end up seeming like just nice guys, nice tour guys who take you around and show you the people bubbling away in the ditch? Curious. Let's move on. Just as you see that the boiling steam grows shallower right here, the centaur said, that is at the Ford, they've crossed at the shallow spot. I, I would have you believe me that the stream bed gets deeper and deeper on the other side until it gets deep enough so that tyranny groans forever. Notice right here, they have clearly transversed half of this circle. They've, they've come from where it was deepest and they've come all the way around where it's shallowest. And now the centaur says, if you go back around the other half, it's back to the deep part where tyranny, where Alexander and Dionysius are boiling back there in tyranny. We've come a long way. We've come way around this circle. Lots of time must have elapsed. When he says, when our pilgrim says, I recognized a lot of these that were up to their chest in the boiling blood, there must have been a lot of time spent picking them out. Oh, there's so-and-so. No, there's so-and-so. No, there's some, right? Because, wow, there's a lot of distance traveled here around. Think about, think about the, 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 the circle, how big this circle must be. I mean, we're seven circles down in hell, but the still big circle round that's going around here. They've covered a lot of ground. And now we start to see the big plunderers because uh, we don't see them. Nessus points them out to us. He says, well, if we go on, if we were to have gone on, divine justice stings Attila. He means Attila the Hun. And we're going to talk much more about Attila the Hun in the next canto. Interesting that here we come to the big 
plunderers, perhaps, and Attila is listed amongst them. Now, some people, I will tell you, there's there's a there's a divide here. Some people say, okay, those first figures we saw are the big murderers, violence against others, and now we come to the big plunderers on this side. I don't know. It could be that, you know, it could be that they're both plundering and murdering all at the same time. Just general bad guys. So there's Attila, who was the scourge of the earth. This is a common, common, almost a cliched way to refer to Attila the Hun, the scourge of the earth. And there's Pyrrhus and Sextus. Pyrrhus is a third century BCE king of Epirus. Um, You probably know his name, Pyrrhus, because of the term Pyrrhic victory. He was considered so violent um, that a victory is one in which the victor is so bloodied it looks like defeat. When you, <laughs> like when, okay, not you, I, when I fight with my husband and, you know, in the end, neither of us wins or maybe I win, but we're both so beat up by the argument that we just had that it's, oh God, who, who wanted to win? It's a Pyrrhic victory. That's Pyrrhus. That's who we're talking about here. This third century BCE king of Epirus. And then Sextus. And this is probably, although it's debated, Sextus Pompeius Magnus. This is Pompey the Great's son. The reference here would be to Lucan's Pharsalia. It is said that Sextus Pompeius, he, the son of Pompey the Great, dishonored the family because he left their mm, high warlord status and became a pirate. And so a plunderer, right? A pirate. He's stealing people's goods. It says it eternally milks the tears loosened by the boiling of Rainier de Cornetto and Rainier Pazzo. These are two local, mm, local, not so local to Dante, one of them, but two local highwaymen, highway robbers. Rainier de Cornetto worked the roads around Rome. Rainier Pazzo worked the highway between Florence and Arezzo. These are Brigands, highwaymen, highway robbers who set set upon you as you go on horseback or on foot between towns, which I told you at the very beginning in medieval culture, you never want to be out on a road alone. And that's because of people who are boiling up in the blood, as it says, who have declared war on the roadways. And then Deitanesis turns back and crosses at the ford again. So he goes back and leaves our pilgrim and Virgil on the other side of the boiling river. Here's a big question for you. When did Dante the pilgrim dismount? Hmm. It doesn't actually say. When does he get on Nessus? Doesn't say. When does he get off Nessus? Doesn't say. When do they cross? Well, it says where they could cross, and I assume that's where they cross. So much opacity. Let's step back and talk about three big points. Is there a problem with physicality in the canto? Maybe. Is there a problem in which, oh, I don't know, uh, that 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 uh, Dante is definitely corporeal, our pilgrim. We've established that now. He's The scree runs under his feet down past the Minotaur. We've dis- discovered all that. But is the question of the centaur's corporeality sitting still back there behind us? Is it not quite certain that they're corporeal? And it may be. This corporeal question may still be dogging Inferno a bit at this point. Or, and this is a second way to say it, is there a certain amount of discomfort here? Remember, go back to Cavalcante. Go back to the heretics. And remember Dante's guilt. And remember Guido Cavalcanti And sending out your fellow poet, banishing him, that leads to his death. 
is there a kind of guilt running under this canto, violence against others? Is that the reason the centaurs seem so threatening and then suddenly seem to just accept Dante as one of their own? Is there a way that guilt is being worked out here? I'm not clear, and I actually don't hold that tightly, although I can posit it. And it's odd that, well, we don't have any real run-of-the-mill murderers. You know, just a guy that, I don't know, like Francesca's husband that killed them because she fell for Paolo. We don't, we don't have any of those. Well, I don't mean that murders run-of-the-mill, but you know what I mean. We have these grand figures, and it's clearly highly structured. We have five of those figures, Alexander Dionysius, Ezzelino, Obizzo, and finally Guy de Montfort. We have five of them. They four, they cross the, the, the they ford the river of boiling blood. And then we got five more, Attila, Paris, Sextus, and the two highwaymen. So it's five and five. I mean, it's nicely set up. It's nicely structured. All of the pillars are in place for good architecture in this canto. Yet, there are problems Cracks running right and left. Okay, let's talk about a second thing. We haven't seen this sort of camaraderie since Limbo. Since Limbo, when Dante joined all the pagan poets and they floated over the river, there they floated and didn't ford, floated over the river and went to the castle and, oh, they accepted me as one of their number and all that bit. Yes, that's all lovely. But we really haven't seen that kind of camaraderie until now. Now we see it again. There's a way in which the centaurs and Dante and Virgil, they're all kind of together in this. It's curious. It's very weird that this kind of camaraderie comes up here and that Nasus just seems like such a nice guy. Nasus is not a nice guy in mythology. It just seems so odd. And a third thing, our pilgrim never spoke in this canto. He turned to Virgil at one point, and Virgil says, you know, let him be your primary and I'll be your second. There's several moments when the pilgrim seems to quail or to to pull back in the face of the Minotaur or the Centaurs, but there's no moment in which the pilgrim actually comes out with anything. Curious again, strange, silent. Why is the pilgrim silent here? Again, is there a guilt that's being worked out here? Is there a problem in terms of the actual physicality of the afterlife? Is that part of the problem? It's really hard to say. And there's one more problem here. Dante is the poet of corporeality without a single doubt. His love for Beatrice, his physical love, his, dare I say it, sexual love is what drives the poetics. And Dante will constantly push back toward the physical every single time. And that is what gives his poem its staying power. That's what differentiates him from Guido Cavalcanti and other poets of his own day. Dante's insistence on particularity, on specificity, on the physical, on the materiality, that actually it's not just some kind of hyper-idealized desire, it's my actual physical, bodily desire for Beatrice that drives me on. That is super important to Dante's poetics. And yet here, in what could be an extremely physical canto, and is, boiling river of blood, all of this stuff that's going on around a centaur, shooting arrows, minotaurs, scree, rolling down uh, a slope, all of this very physical stuff, this seems to be a canto in which our pilgrim gets a little disembodied. That is all 
unbelievably strange, but perhaps it's part of a big problem. If Dante is the poet of corporeality, the poet who insists that love is physical, who insists that theology is actually worked out in the body, not just in the mind or the spirit, which is going to become more and more thematic to the poem, that that salvation, redemption is bodily, not just spiritual. If that's all the case and all important, then we have a certain existential dilemma. Dante is the only one in the body in the afterlife. And that's what's so strange. For our poet poet of corporeality, he is always differentiated as a pilgrim from anyone he runs into in the afterlife because he is still in his body and they are not. They yearn for their bodies. We'll see up in Paradiso that the redeemed really do ache for their bodies to be returned to them. But this always puts a wall between our pilgrim and anything that's happening around him in the afterlife because he is still in the flesh. And I think that question may be why the centaurs slip right and left. That space in which I am slightly different from everything else, or maybe not slightly, I am profoundly different from everything else going around me. That gap is the engine of the poem. My difference from all of them, my difference from Francesca, my difference from Chaco, my difference from all of them, the way that I am in my body and they are not, is part of what drives the narrative engine and drives the poetics. And here suddenly we reach a point in which maybe it's not so clear. Are the centaurs corporeal? Are they in their bodies? Are they damned? I don't know. And it's not so clear. And so suddenly the narrative engine falters just slightly because that gap that has been crucial to the driving force of the poem, that is, that gap that, for example... Our pilgrim is in the body, so he could be destroyed by Medusa from the walls of Dis. He could be turned into stone and destroyed right there. The threat is honestly real, and the real threat there is because he's embodied, because he's physical. Our poet of corporeality is physical. It's what's driven the narrative engine. It drives the threat. It makes all the pain of the spirits seem very real because the corporeal pilgrim is witnessing it. It helps us across the gap between us and the afterlife for him to be there in the flesh. And maybe this canto just finds itself in a sticky wicket and cannot get out of this question. I realize I've beaten this thing like a dead centaur. Okay, I've beaten it like a dead centaur. However, I think it's incredibly important to Canto 12, into what's going on here, into keeping this Canto always centered in the poet's poetics, or what I see as those poetics. Every writer has to work out the terms of what they write. If you've enjoyed this podcast of Walking with Dante, I encourage you to subscribe. I encourage you to drop a comment. Thank you so much. Those of you who contact me either on Twitter, on Instagram, instant messages, on Facebook, instant messages in the Facebook group, or directly through my website. Thank you. I so appreciate it. 
you know, I'm sitting here in my office and I'm doing this deed by myself, all alone, recording these podcasts, doing the research for them. And, you know, it really is wonderful to be able to hear someone say, yeah, that was great, or, you I think you missed it right there. All of that is so fabulous, and it just it makes my day when it happens. So thank you for that. Come back. We're about to descend one more ring, still in the seventh circle, on down to Canto 13. And those who have been violent against themselves. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante. Mm-hmm.